Pastor Brian, why don't you come up? You want to come up and I'll say, you get your stuff together. When you're ready, you pop up, all right? All right, so, um, so Pastor Michael Bryant is here. He's from Chicago, and I, I met him probably, I would guess, maybe 15, 12, 15 years, 14 years? Okay, keeping me honest, 14 years ago at camp. And every year we would go to camp at the same time. We'd bring kids. He would bring them from Chicago. We would bring them from Iowa City here, and we would spend time together, okay? And I'll tell you a few more things about that. But we affectionately became known... Uh, uh, Mike, myself, and another guy by the name of Uncle Robert became known as really good eating buddies. Um, we spent the week finding places around Branson, Missouri to eat good food, barbecue, catfish, things like that. And so um, we did a lot of eating. It usually wasn't the healthiest like for our physical being that week of camp. Um, however, um, it was incredibly healthy for our soul, for, our, for my spirit. All right, I can honestly say I've never laughed as much as I laugh when I'm with this man. Um, he's a true, true friend of mine. Um, he's been an encouragement to me over the years. And he's just going to spend a few minutes here this morning um, just being an encouragement and hopefully encouraging you and even challenging us a little bit as a church. So, Pastor Mike, why don't you, why don't you come on up and I'm going to turn this over to you. And we agreed on about five to ten minutes, so we'll see, we'll see how that goes. First, give the highest honors to God, who's the head of my life, uh, to this great church, and to the pastor. Uh, bring you greetings from the Cavalier Baptist Church on the west side of Chicago. And uh, we just, uh, Doug has given me now nine minutes to say what I have, have, have to say. Uh, I'm, I'm let me tell you a little bit about myself. I love the Lord. Is that how you? Hey, all right, all right, <laughs> all right. Uh, I love the Lord, and uh, I'm the fifth child, six, born to Reverend Calvin Bryant Sr. and Mary Bryant. My father passed five years ago. Uh, my mother will be 90 in March if the Lord says the same. I grew up on the west side of Chicago, went to the local schools. In 1984, I graduated from Northern Illinois University, which is right down the street uh, in DeKalb. Um, I've been working for Nabisco since 1984 as a sales rep. Um, in 1989, I married the most beautiful woman in the world, my wife, Lorraine. She's in the back. Yes. We have four girls, one of them is with us today, Rebecca. Uh, I met my Doug, Doug in 2005, amen, at KAA, and we've been friends ever since. It's just beautiful, uh, the, the relationship that we've uh, fostered. Uh, 2014, my father, after 39 years, he passed, and uh, I wasn't looking to be the pastor. I was selected pastor. Uh, I really didn't want to, but how can you tell God no? And that's what I was faced with. I couldn't tell God no. Uh, 
has been challenges for me as a pastor. I've been a pastor for five years in the city. Uh, there's a lot of good and bad and ugly things in, in the city, but I thank God that he's placed me in that, in that spot for a reason. I am a product of the west side of Chicago, just to let you know that good things come from the west side of Chicago. Amen. Amen. Um, just briefly, from Luke chapter 10, verses 25-37, we know the conversation Jesus had with the lawyer. Um, the lawyer asks Jesus the question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus questions him again, said, what does the scripture say? What does the law say? He says, uh, love God, love yourself, and love your neighbor. We can all agree with that, right? <laughs> all right? And then he, he, he goes on and uh, trying to trip up Jesus, said, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> who, who is my neighbor? And Jesus went on to give a great parable that we all are familiar with, the Good Samaritan. And uh, the man was robbed uh, at Jericho Road. And uh, being in Chicago, we're used to having areas where you tell people, don't go here or don't go there <laughs> because it's, it's bad situations. But uh, it's just amazing that the priests and the Levites, as we could say, the church folk, didn't help them out, right? Uh, and many times people come to the church for help and we leave them cold, all right? Uh, who, is, who is your neighbor? They had excuses, right? They had excuses. The priest may have said, well, I have to go to the temple. I just come from back from the temple and I'm ready to go home, all right? Uh, the Levite did the same thing. What the priest did, he did nothing. But the Good Samaritan, which is uh, what we call half-breeds, uh, they were looked down as dogs uh, in society. Uh, these are the people who are helping the people who usually help other people. All right? So uh, why would this Good Samaritan want to help somebody? Because he loved those who hated him. He, rushed, he risked his own life. Uh, he even gave extra wages to take care of him until he came back. All right? Isn't that beautiful? And uh, similarly, uh, he showed mercy. He showed compassion. And my challenge to us is who, who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? A neighbor is anyone that God places in your path. It doesn't matter what, what the geography, I'm in Iowa today, I'll be in Chicago tonight, <laughs> amen. It doesn't matter your geography, your citizenship, your race, uh, your neighbor is whoever God places in front of you who's in need. And are you willing to help someone in need? Uh, that's the challenge for us today as a church, to help those who are, are in need. In need. All right? And I'm, I'm just hoping the challenge for us today, again, is to help those who are in need. 
Jesus said in verse 37, I'm almost done. He said, go into, he, he asked him, well, who, who was the neighbor? Out of all these three, who was the neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Good Samaritan? Hmm. He responded. The Good Samaritan, he said, go and do likewise. And I pray and I trust that we would, would not be just be comfortable just being here in church, but as the need uh, becomes prevalent, as people, God stop placing people in our lives to help, we won't look the other way. We won't say that somebody else's responsibility to do, but we'll say, Lord, how can I help this person? Just one song that says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But one day, the master of the sea, he saw me sinking, falling, drowning from the water. He lifted me. Now save me. God bless you. Um, so, Pastor Michael has been a dear friend of mine, and I said before, he's been a huge encouragement to me over the years. What you guys don't know is that as this man stands here before you, he's a man who has historically prayed for you, although you don't know it. Uh, one of the things that me and this brother do on a, I wouldn't say totally regular basis, but on an occasional basis, <laughs> when he can get a millennial on a phone, <laughs> as he would say. Hey, can I say this one thing? <laughs> yeah. I can never call uh, because he never answered. <laughs> There's a few amens I think I heard out there. Amen. He's definitely a millennial. Uh, he would never answer my calls, but if I text him, he'll say he'll respond quickly. <laughs> All right, C carry on. Carry on. Thank carry you. On. Thank you. We're just going back out from underneath that bus real quick. Um, <laughs> So he, he has been, a, he's been a, we've been a prayer buddies, so he's been praying for me, and, he, and he, he's been praying for you as well. Um, he knows some of the different things that we face as a church, and uh, have faced personally, um, and uh, he's been there for me in some of my, um, it's the darkest moments, yes. and uh, he's, he's prayed for you guys over the years, so you, you don't know that, um, but I want to make sure you do now, all right? Um, he's been a dear friend to me, and he's a dear friend to our church. Uh, what are some, some ways that we can pray for you? As he mentioned a little bit of his story, um, he's kind of assumed just the leadership of his church in the past five years and has had to kind of learn the role of being a pastor. But he's luckily had a great man to, to follow and to learn from. Yes. Um, how can we pray for you and your church? Well, pray uh, for stability. Uh, there's so much going on in, in Chicago. Uh, poverty, uh, drug activity, negativity, uh, no hope, uh, despair, constant despair that people see. And we're trying to create something better for people in the neighborhood to see. Mm. And that's why I usually take the kids to camp because all they see in Chicago is negativity. And I want them to see there's more to life than what you see if you trust in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah. But pray. Pray for our efforts in our neighborhood that we will 
draw more people to Christ and that Christ will be praised. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you and you pray for us. Does that sound good? All right. Father God, thank you for um, Pastor Brian. Lord, thank you for um, the way that you are using him and his family um, and his neighborhood and his church, Lord. Um, Lord, I, I do pray that for their church, Lord, that they would see a season of stability um, as he seeks to invest in and train up leaders, uh, men and women who want to uh, just proclaim your gospel and serve your people, Lord. I pray that you would give him a vision for that and how to do that, and I pray that folks would respond to his leadership, Lord. I pray that you would just continue to make your presence known among um, your people there on the west side of Chicago, Lord, and as they seek to um, deliver hope in uh, an area in a neighborhood where uh, maybe sometimes hope can be hard to find, Lord, I pray um, that you would allow that church to be like a city on a hill, Lord, that you would let your light shine through um, this pastor, this man, and his church, Lord. That's our prayer for them. Amen. You want to pray for us? Yes. Okay. Is there anything specific you want me to pray for? <laughs> I'd say the same thing you prayed for your church, you can pray for our church. How about that? Yes, okay. That's good. All right. Yeah. Lord, we, we thank you for Pastor Doug, and we thank you for this great fellowship. And Lord, you know what we need even before we ask. And we mm -hmm. pray that you would touch each, each individual here at this church, that you would uh, plant in our hearts to a heart of service and, and love for you. Lord, we, we pray that we would take out our selfishness and selfish desire, and Lord, just fill us with your spirit, mm -hmm. fill us with your love, fill us with your kindness, and Lord, uh, uh, grant us grace and peace uh, in the midst of any storm that we may be going through. Mm -hmm. Well, Lord, we, we, we challenge ourselves, and we, we challenge this church to continue to, to grow and flourish and to go beyond these walls to help those who uh, really need to hear, hear about Christ. Mm -hmm. So we pray for this pastor that you give him strength courage and bless his family, bless his children, and Lord, help him to be a light, help him to be the salt of the earth here in, in Iowa City. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Mike. I'll just, I can read it. It's okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry, I did a little impromptu thing there. It's okay. All right. So um, I would invite you, church, if you have your Bibles with you, to take them out and open them up to Genesis chapter 2. Um, you may or may not know that as a church, we are walking through uh, the first portion of Genesis together as a church. And so we'll be this morning in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. 18 through 25. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read them, and uh, read those verses, and then we'll kind of dive right in, all right? Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, just as we look at your words this morning, I pray that you would um, use them to reveal to us your truth, that you would show us our need, and you would provide for us hope that comes only from you. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would take these words that we believe to be eternal and true, and we ask that you would write them on our hearts. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. An arts program in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which brings together shipyard workers and their gentrified neighbors, a deteriorating crime-ridden neighborhood in Boston, is transformed by a determined group of civic organizers. In Wisconsin, school children learn how to participate in the political process to benefit their town. In his follow-up book to the acclaimed Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam examines these initiatives and others just like them as he explores how people across the country are inventing new forms of social activism and community renewal. His argument throughout the book is perfectly and concisely summed up by the title of his book, Better Together. Communities thrive and flourish when people come together. Communities are better together. Folks, this morning in our text, we discover a very similar truth. We will see that because God has uniquely made us as social creatures, we should therefore seek deep relationships and celebrate God's beautiful design. In other words, folks, the truth before us this morning is that we as a people of God must understand that we are better together. Life is better when we live it together. We'll see this idea in our text this morning is kind of supported as we discover first the condition of man, then the creation of woman, and finally the institution of marriage. So, first up, verses 18 through 20, we see the creation of man. This is no doubt a familiar text for many of us. If you look at verse 18, this verse stands out against what we have been reading and discovering so far in the creation narrative. For the first time, we are told in this idyllic setting, the setting of the Garden of Eden, this sort of perfect paradise, that actually it was not all good. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Folks, up until now, as God has assessed his creation, he has done so with words like good, right? He makes something and he looks at it, and the grade he gives it is a good grade, right? When he finally completes the creation, right, when he, when he creates male and female, his assessment is that it's not just good, but actually it is very good. This is the only, verse 18 is the only 
negative assessment in the creation account. And as we read it, to be sure, it is emphatically negative. As God looks at man and sees him alone in isolation, God's conclusion on man's condition is it ain't good. It's not good that man is alone. Why is it not good that man is alone? Again, you would think man placed by himself, no, no opportunity for conflict or tension or different opinions, placed in this perfect setting of paradise, you would think these are the conditions that are ripe for goodness, right? But God looks at it and he has a different idea. Throughout scripture, we come to learn that life in isolation is a contradiction to not just the calling of our humanity, but our nature as humans as well. We see this in two different ways here in the text. First is, we, we understand that humanity, we've learned already in Genesis chapter 1, that as humans, we are uniquely crafted. What makes us stand apart from the rest of creation is that we are uniquely knitted as a reflection of God himself. We are made in his image. God who himself exists as three persons in one. God does not exist in solitude, but rather enjoys the fellowship and the community of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this communal nature of God demands necessarily that, that humanity be structured communally as well, because we are made in his image. The triune nature of God yields in us naturally fellowship and community. Second reason that we see is um, that this is, is actually, con that for us to live in isolation is a bad thing, is because it's actually contrary to our design. Um, we, we call it the be with factor, the be with factor. The greatest thing in life, the longing of all of mankind, is that our home is with God. If you think of the whole reason why we can say we are satisfied in him is because we want to be with him. You can't be satisfied to God if you don't see yourself primarily as with God. Right? It's the idea that we've, we've talked about before that our hearts are restless until we find rest with him. Our home is to be with God. He created us that we would belong to him and that we would be with him. And until we realize that, our souls, our hearts are restless. And if the calling of humanity is to be with God, it is fitting that our life on earth is characterized by being with. That we are in social relationships, right? It's like he's priming us for the ultimate relationship with him, it's not good for us to be alone ultimately because to do so would be fatal for all of us, right? We would die without God. Again, this is, you have to remember, this, is, this text is prior to Genesis chapter 3, before the introduction of sin into God's good and perfect creation. How much more true is this of our world today? which though we still bear some resemblance to Eden, we suffer the effects, our creation, our world, our communities suffer the effects of sin. Bonhoeffer points this out, that in our world broken by sin, this reality for us not to be alone is even amplified. 
He says, sin demands to have man by himself. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive the power of sin becomes over him. Right? This is really one of the devil's great tactics, is to get you by yourself. And when that happens, sin becomes a destructive force that can have its way. You know, when I think of, of our relationship, um, when I first started going to camp a number of years ago, they would give out these kind of awards for individuals, uh, for folks who would bring just kind of funny awards ceremony they'd have at the end of the camp. And one of the first years I went, the award, it's really the only award I think I won, so I did this one thing really good, um, was I slept all week long, okay? I was just exhausted. And so I just, every time anybody came in the cabin, they would see me on a cot asleep. And they just gave me an award at the end of the week for sleeping. Now, as nourishing and as important as that was for me during that week to kind of restore strength and health to my body, ultimately what I began to find out was my experience at camp was much better when I spent it with individuals. When I built friendships and relationships with the men who were in my cabin. When I began to, to get to know Mike and Uncle Robert, my time at camp was amazing, right? We had tons of fun and ate really good food, right? My experience at camp, what I began to realize was better when I experienced it with somebody else. This is especially important in our day and age when it's becoming increasingly easier to function as an adult with limited human interaction. It's not just the broken and fragile nature of humanity which can cause us to drift into isolation, folks. Now technology and innovation makes it all the more easier for us to, to, to limit our social interactions with each other. This text stands out this morning as a reminder that actually your life is better when you are with others. Some of you, though, aren't buying it, maybe. Maybe some of you would disagree. Now, it's interesting if you look at what God described, the conditions about in the garden that God described as not good. Think about the conditions. Again, you would think that this is exactly what man wants. You would think it is. Man is there, placed in the garden by himself. All of creation parading in front of him. He has power and dominion to name creatures, right? So there man is in the garden by himself, the world revolving around him, and he has complete power. He has dominion over creation. And God looks at that and says, a world centered around yourself with a lot of power is actually not good. And it's interesting because my guess is there's some of us sitting in here this morning who tend to think actually the path to satisfaction, the path to true life looks like a world revolving around myself with lots of power in my hands. Most of humanity tends to think that is the path towards ultimate satisfaction. And before creation gets too far down the path, God says, hold up, let me remind you something real quick, that is not good for you. Total power, world revolving around yourself, is actually not good. That's God's assessment of it. So what does God do? How does he remedy the problem? Well, we see in verses 20 through 22 that God creates woman. 
God disrupts the isolated self with another. God's pursuit of finding a helper, a suitable counterpart, is finally realized in the creation of woman. Look down at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman. Now we've already established that it's not good for man to be alone. In the same way that day and night were not whole without the sun and without the moon, in the same way that the sky and the waters were not whole or complete without birds that were flying in the sky and fish that were swimming in the waters, in the same way that the land that God had formed was not really complete until he filled it, with creatures that crawled all across it. In the exact same way, man was not whole, was not complete until he could find and create a helper who was fit for him, according to the text. Focus on that phrase, fit, a helper, fit for him. We see it twice in verse 18 and again in verse 20. This phrase describes ultimately what man is lacking. He's lacking a helper that is fit for him. How will we understand the nature of this helper? It's important that we understand what God is creating because a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation has historically caused a tremendous amount of damage, not just in our community, in our society, in our world, but also in the church. So what does it mean? What does a helper Fit for him. What does that phrase mean? The, the, the fact is that this phrase is not, should not be something that we approach sort of gingerly, afraid to embrace. What could this mean, right? But actually what we'll see as we discover it, as you read through the Bible, what you, what you begin to see is that this, what God is creating, what he's designing is something that we should celebrate, right? First thing to point out about it is the text emphasizes the likeness, the similarity of this helper. An emphasis of the text is on the similarity between the two. After the parade of creatures that have been brought before man, there is another that is like him. There's a closeness that the other creatures don't have that Adam himself more than likely sees as these these animals are parading in front of him. He identifies that there is something missing. More than likely, he's being able to understand that he needs and lacks something as well. This being that God creates, this essence is like his essence. In the, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. The similarity is also highlighted in man's response. Adam responds, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, because she was taken out of man. It's it's already been established that, that God made both male and female in his image, and the text emphasizes that both are equally human. Both are equally human. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, history has this sort of recurring tendency over and over again to neglect this reality, this biblical truth. And it restricts and imprisons woman just to femininity, right? 
rather than recognizing the equality of humanity that is in both male and female. Genesis 2 serves as a safeguard then, as then when it was first written by Moses and served as a safeguard then as it does now in a world that is dominated by chauvinism and ideas of not just male superiority, but any kind of superiority. Genesis 2 is a safeguard from that. Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, wrote this um, wonderful quote, which you probably have heard before. The, the woman is not made out of the head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved by him. The text clearly emphasizes the equality of both male and female. But there's something else it emphasizes. It also emphasizes the otherness, the otherness. It's also clear that the woman is not the man and the man is not the woman. There is a distinction, okay? While they are the same essence, God sought to make a helper fit for man, suitable for man, a companion for man. Literally, the term means opposite him. So the picture that emerges is not one of man and woman standing side by side, but one of man and woman standing face to face. Man and woman exist as complements to one another. It is as others that man and woman exist together. This face-to-face -face relationship is a constant reminder that we should fight the temptation to constantly surround ourselves and our lives with people who look just like us, who talk just like us, who act just like us, who dress just like us, who have the same level of education, or who, who live in the same neighborhood, people who share the same preferences and opinions. This text reminds us that life together looks like life with other, with people who are different from us. We are not just designed to seek deep and meaningful relationships, but this demands a, a respect from creation, a respect for those who are different from us. And it's interesting, this term helper is an interesting term. It appears some 20 times in the Old Testament, and 80% of those times, it actually is referring to God himself. So this is not a, this is not a term that degrades woman or put, places her, her in, a, in a lower, second kind of class uh, level, right? This, this term is described to talk about God himself, who has complete power, now, I'll be the first to admit there is a great deal of pressure to conceal or to simply ignore what the Scripture teaches about gender. The truth is, Scripture has a great deal to say about the importance and the creation of gender. And this truth, when studied throughout the Bible, when applied and celebrated, actually leads and produces human flourishing in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and in the world. And oftentimes where it's suppressed, where it's rejected, where it's kept at a stiff arm's distance, the, the opposite is what happens. Humanity does not flourish 
right? But it's restricted and it's cornered off. What our role is as a church, as followers of Jesus, is to not just learn this word, to, but to apply it in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces. And if we really embrace it, it looks like a place where we value both genders equally, right? And we don't restrict them just to their gender, but, but rather line them up and say, humanity is made in God's image. Humanity is made in God's image. So after God makes, crafts this helper that is fit for this man, he brings her to man. And in verses 22, 25, we see the institution of marriage. The final scene of our text really solves man's problem of isolation. God solves it, and he does so through the gift of marriage. It's a gift to be sure. It's a gift that is given for our good and for his glory. And therefore, it follows that we hold it sacred, and as a church, we celebrate it, right? First marriage is truly the ideal marriage. The setting, it's the perfect temple garden. I mean, I could not think of a better setting. I think, you know, my wife and I had a wonderful, I don't know if she's back there or not anymore. Maybe she left. Maybe I said something offensive. Hopefully not. I'm just kidding. It's, it's hard not to just, you know, use all kinds of applications and illustrations because they abound, right? Um, but we had a great marriage, right? Our, our wedding was beautiful. And, and maybe if you are here, this, I shouldn't say we had a great marriage. Our marriage is, is flawed, Okay. She will tell you that our marriage is trying to be great. There's lots of room to improve, right? Amen? Okay. Uh, but we had a beautiful wedding. Okay, we had a beautiful wedding. We had a wedding that was, that was there on the shores of Belize. There was, it was an evening. The, sunset was, the sun was setting that night. The waves were crashing up on the shore. And it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous setting. And in many ways, it was, by my estimation, it was a perfect wedding ceremony. But it has nothing on this wedding ceremony, right? Nothing to this wedding. This wedding's setting is paradise itself. The wedding coordinator. I mean, come on, can you beat this coordinator? The guy who drew this up, you know, planned it. It's absolutely perfect. Not just is he the coordinator, he's also the attendant who stands next to the bride and hands her over to man. I mean, this is, by no stretch of the imagination, the perfect wedding ceremony. And Adam's response, see, receives this gift, this helper who's fit and designed, tailor-made just for him as he is for her. His response is a song marked by poetic beauty. The first words that man speaks in this narrative, words that man speak marked by poetic beauty. Some might say it's been downhill ever since. Maybe. But in his song, what Adam does is he recognizes the perfect fit of this beautiful companion. The language used in verse 22 through 25 describe the institution of marriage. And it's, it's critical to understanding not simply the nature, but also the role that this institution plays in the redemption, the history of redemption for us as a people. 
demands a similar response as we consider it, not just for those who are married here this morning, but really from all of us. Truth is, we have folks present in this room who are in marriages that are thriving, that are doing really well, that are strong. There are some folks in marriages in this room that are struggling, difficult. Maybe even this morning that might mark your relationship. Truth is, we have everything in between. And the other truth is that there's a good chance it's strong this morning, but something might happen this afternoon and tomorrow you'd give it a different grade. Or maybe he would, right? It's not easy. It's difficult. But it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. There's some in this room this morning who maybe long to be married. Maybe that's a a desire God has placed on your heart but you haven't found a helper that's fit for you. Is there any hope in this text for you this morning? Maybe some of you have been in a marriage that has not been um, good. Maybe it's, been, it's over. Is there hope for you this morning? I think there is. Look at the three verbs that are described in verses... Well, I just, I'll point out three of the verbs that are used to describe this union, verses 24 and 25. This, this word leave, therefore a man shall leave his father, shall forsake his father and his mother, reject, this word reject, he's rejecting his familiar ties from before, from the past. It's often used throughout the Old Testament to describe how Israel rejects Yahweh himself. And really what this word is getting at is that there is an exclusive relationship that is being formed with this institution of marriage. As God gives the bride to the man, there is an exclusivity to this relationship that is unique, right? You can't have that family and this family and that family, right? There's, there's one marriage, right? There's an exclusivity to this relationship. There's a relationship between this man and this woman that is, is so deep, it's so profound, it's so intimate that it cannot be experienced with any other individual on the face of the earth. It's that Exclusive. He leaves his mother and his father and he's joined. The word hold fast. He, he cleaves to this woman. He clings to her. Serves her in loyalty. And it's, it's a relationship that is a brand new relationship that for him to experience life, he has to cling to this woman. It's, it's a word really that designates an understanding of permanence. That this, as they cling together, they are forming a bond which just can't be broken. And then we, we're told that they become one flesh. This is a union. It's a union that's marked by intimacy and harmony. And it's sealed by God himself. Now as we read this text, maybe visualizing sort of the perfect marriage. And like I said before, maybe... You can't relate. Maybe you've never seen a marriage that looks like this. Permanent. Exclusive. Intimate. Harmonious. Genesis 2. Remember this is before the fall. There's no shame. They're naked and they're together. They're doing exactly what God has commanded them to do. Because there's kids in the house. I'll just simply say because of the work and the union... They're staying busy. You know what I'm saying? They're staying real busy. And it's a good thing. There's no shame involved 
whatsoever. There's no differing opinions, no difficult decisions. While this is the ideal union, we know that we live in a world that is east of Eden. And things are quite honestly different for us. So is there any hope here for us this morning? Well, this language, as you read this idea of leaving, of cleaving, of becoming one flesh, this language should sound familiar to you. This, this marriage, this relationship, this union that's being formed should sound familiar. It's, it's, it's really this, this picture. Marriage is a picture. It's a portrait. It's a signpost that actually God designs to point us to a different relationship. A relationship that ultimately fulfills us, ultimately satisfies us. And even when difficult things happen between us, there is a hope that we can have because really he's not designed you just for marriage, male to female, right? That's not just why he's designed. There's something better that this text is holding out for us this morning, for us to see. Our hopes in life are not bound in the ups and downs of this world, but by the wonder and the joy of God's plan for eternity. His plan for a new creation, a new Eden. A world that is primarily marked by a relationship that God intended for us to have for eternity. And how does he describe that relationship, us with him? He gives us the picture of marriage he gives us the picture of marriage as sort of this wonderful visual aid of what God offers to us in himself. Revelation 21. Get this wonderful vision of what eternity will look like. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and he will, they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, God gives us this picture of marriage ultimately to describe what he's trying to cultivate and generate in our hearts and in our relationship with him. So as we think of the, the institution of marriage, whether it's one that we can personally relate to or maybe it's one that we see here at our church or maybe in our family or in our home, it should be a signpost, a reminder ultimately of the hope that we have that we can be in eternity with God. With God. What he's offering to us, marriage, is something to be celebrated because ultimately it reminds us of the very thing God provides us in our need. He sees us, he sees you, maybe, alone this morning. And God says, that ain't good. That is not good. Your life, your life will be better if you live it together. Together. Now, we do so with folks who are different from us. Not just gender, but all over the map, right? Differences. We build relationships with people who are not like us to celebrate ultimately what God has done and is perfecting in us. We are designed, folks, for relationship. My hope is this morning, if you're here, maybe there's a relationship that is broken in your life. Maybe there's a lack of relationships in your life. 
My hope is, and what I think the text really is calling us to, is to celebrate the way that God has hardwired us to live in community with each other, to pursue each other in relationship. If you're here this morning and you are married, this morning's text is a reminder that our union, your marriage, matters to God. Because it's a picture, the way you love your wife, the way you love your husband, is a picture to those around you of the way God loves you. The way God loves you. If you're here this morning and marriage is specifically a painful topic, maybe, for you, um, we're reminded that, that when God has placed us in relationship with each other, we, he, he does so in the context of a community, of a church, right? And it's completely okay if marriage is something that God has placed on your heart. It's a desire that you have to pray for that. The Bible tells us he will grant you the desires of your heart. And if it's a need for you, a desire for you to be with somebody, this church celebrates that. Right? We come alongside, regardless of where we are, we build relationships together, and we understand that for us to really accomplish God's purpose in this world, in this church, it's going to require that God's people come together, regardless of what those differences may be. Right? God put us in this context, and our mission to serve Him, to bring glory and honor to Him, and to live a life for His for our good and his glory, is done when we do it together. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you for um, just this reminder in the text, Lord, of how you have made your creation and your world. And, um, Lord, we just confess that oftentimes there are certain things that, as we read your word, can be hard for us um, to even just understand what you're saying, Lord, and uh, specifically how to apply it. And, Lord, for, for all of that, we need your grace and we need your truth. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your church this morning. Help us to be obedient to what you've called us to be obedient to. And um, Lord, we just love you and we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.